So our scripture reading today is from Genesis 41, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 40. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the banks of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and diseased by the wet east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who can interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servant and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can't interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly in the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full of good, Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown to the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, 
and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during these seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ordered themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So we are continuing our study of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And uh, just to recap, over the last few weeks, we have studied how the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. And we saw how the Holy Spirit brings life, abundance, and flourishing. Last week, we looked at two psalms, and we looked at how the psalmist connected God's justice and righteousness with the natural processes that would work for the proper ordering of the world. And again, we saw behind this that the Holy Spirit was at work sustaining and creating, uh, or sustaining creation to promote, again, life and flourishing. That is why breath is such a great metaphor for the Holy Spirit and why breath is such a good translation of the Hebrew uh, word for spirit, ruach. And what I want to do over the next few weeks is to look at some specific instances of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of individuals. And what I want us to do is use these case studies and see the various different ways the Holy Spirit works in the world through his people. And my point in doing this, what I hope to do is to expand our view of the Holy Spirit because I think our view is much too narrow. And I want us to see how the Holy Spirit works in our lives and in our church. So if we start at the beginning of the Old Testament, as we already know, uh, we find the first of the spirit, uh, appearance of Ruach, of spirit, in Genesis 1-2. And then as we go through Genesis, we encounter several more ambiguous instances of the word Ruach, which, as you know now, uh, being good Hebrew scholars can also mean breath or wind. Now, if you'll remember back to my first sermon, I think that that ambiguity in the translation is part of the point because it kind of, it, it, it gets across the mystery of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes a breeze is just a breeze, but sometimes it is much more. Sometimes it's a wind that miraculously delivers quail. For example, Ruach shows up in the Noah story when a Ruach dries up the floodwaters. Uh, the floodwaters are often... Uh, called uh, the deep uh, in the Noah story, or that Hebrew word, anybody remember it? No. To home, a thousand resurrection points to Linda. All right. Uh, since the floodwaters are sometimes called the deeper to home, we can view the flood as a reversal of the creation. And so when we see the Spirit come to dry up the waters, we see again the Spirit restoring order to creation and uh, bringing life after the devastation of the flood. But as we continue through Genesis, the next clear example of the Holy Spirit is this passage that we're studying today. And it comes from, when, uh, from, from this story when Pharaoh identifies Joseph 
as a man in whom the Ruach, or Spirit of God, is. And I think it's significant. I think this is a really interesting story because notice it is Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, who identifies the Holy Spirit in working in Joseph. Uh, It's pretty remarkable for a foreign ruler to acknowledge the Spirit, and especially a ruler of one of Israel's historic enemies. And I think it's meant to be so. It's meant to be jarring and surprising because this detail adds to the impressiveness of Joseph's actions in this story. So inspired was Joseph that even a foreign, non-believing ruler of a historically hostile kingdom had to recognize the work of the Spirit of God. So, with that set up, that leads to a very important question. What was it specifically about Joseph and how the Spirit worked in Joseph that led to such a stunning confession from such an unlikely source as Pharaoh? So, to help us answer the question, uh, we first need to see how this story fits into the overall story of Joseph. And the Joseph story is just a great story. You know, I'm just, I was looking through this and I'm just thinking like, wow, this is amazing. This story is like really old and it's so good. It's got like everything we love in a good story. You know, the outcast who against all odds rises to this prominent position. And so it's no wonder it's such a popular uh, subject for cartoons and musicals and Sunday school lessons. But uh, just in case, you know, to help us out, to get kind of get us to remember and get us uh, uh, to understand what we're going, what's going on here with Jesus, uh, with Joseph. Remember, Joseph is the youngest of eleven brothers, whose father is named Jacob, and Jacob is super important because he's the grandson of Abraham, and Abraham, of course, was uh, the one who was called out by God and promised blessing in the form of land and descendants, and whose family would ultimately bless the whole world. Uh, This was the family that was going to undo the problems of sin and death and destruction and disorder. And as Abraham's grandson, Jacob is the recipient of that promise. So Jacob has 12 sons from two different wives and two of his servants. As Joseph was the oldest son of his favorite wife, Joseph becomes Jacob's favorite. Obviously, with this setup, we are talking about a totally dysfunctional family. So it's no surprise that when Jacob made uh, no secret of his greater affection for Joseph, and he even gets Joseph this really cool coat, that Joseph's brothers were pretty upset with him. To make matters worse, I think Joseph is kind of a punk. Uh, He has these dreams about his brothers and even his parents bowing down to him. And rather than keeping that to himself, he shares them with his brothers who obviously did not like him. And so upset were his brothers with uh, Joseph running his mouth about these things that they plot to kill Joseph. However, at the last minute, Joseph's oldest brother, Reuben, decides that rather than killing Joseph, maybe they should just sell him as a slave because then at least they can make some money off of this deal. So I can imagine, can you imagine what this family's Thanksgiving dinners must have been like? I mean, crazy. Um, So Joseph ends up in Egypt where he becomes a slave to a uh, high official named Potiphar. And that seems to actually work out okay for Joseph because Potiphar ends up recognizing that Joseph is a man of ability and intelligence. And so he becomes uh, one of his most respected servants. He's given like lots of responsibility and put in charge of things for Potiphar. So everything seems to be cool for Joseph until 
Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of trying to seduce her, and Joseph ends up in prison. But, strangely, this too eventually works out well for Joseph, because while he's in prison, there are two high court officials uh, of Egypt who have fallen out of favor. And that's why they're in prison. But they each have this dream, and Joseph is able to demonstrate his wisdom by successfully interpreting the dreams. And this pays off big for Joseph after one of the officials has his position restored because Pharaoh has a dream that the court magicians cannot interpret. And so the officials know just the man to call to help out Pharaoh. Uh, Now it's at this point that our scripture reading uh, begins today. Pharaoh has this crazy dream where he stands beside the Nile and he sees these seven fat, beautiful cows eaten by seven thin, sickly cows. And another dream where Pharaoh sees seven ears of plump grain followed by seven scraggly, diseased ears of grain. Now these dreams really disturbed Pharaoh. And so he caused his court magicians to interpret their dreams, but he's not satisfied with any of their interpretations. The court official then remembers Joseph. Uh, and, and so he, uh, his interpretation of the dreams, which Pharaoh accepts as accurate, Joseph warns Pharaoh of dark days ahead as the thin, sickly cows and scraggly, diseased grains symbolize, symbolize seven years of famine. Uh, but Joseph goes beyond that. He goes beyond just interpreting the dreams. Notice at the end, he provides a solution. Joseph devises a plan to store a certain percentage of the grain during the prosperous years so Egypt will be prepared during the years of famine. And it's at this point that Pharaoh recognizes that the Spirit of God must be at work in uh, Joseph. Can people hear me over the... Okay, I'm I'm Okay. Audiovisual man. Yeah, I'm. 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 I know. I'm, I'm competing against the. Yeah. Thanks, Gabe. All right. Okay. To understand what is going on here, we first need to understand how the ancients thought about dreams and dream interpretation. In the ancient world, dreams were thought of as potential methods of communication from the divine realm. The Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, and the Israelites to some extent believe this. Now, of course, the trick was not every dream was a divine message. Sometimes a dream is just a dream. But the other trick is that, as we know from our own dreams, dreams are weird. It's not clear what is going on, and oftentimes they don't make a lot of sense. There's a mystery to them. So even if you conclude that your dream is a divine communication, you still have to figure out what it means. Fortunately, in the ancient world, there were people who could tell you if your dream was divine and what it meant. And here's the thing you have to understand, and this is the point we have to get across, because it's it's a different way of looking at the world. See, in the ancient world, there was not this like neat and, and simple distinction that we have between the religious and the natural, or the religious and the secular. So even though these dreams were divine from the divine world, it wouldn't have been seen quite the same supernatural way that we tend to think. Dream interpretation was just another method of gaining knowledge and discerning wisdom. Uh, To the ancients, this would have been considered like a science. In fact, dream interpretation was actually a field of study. 
You can learn it as an art, just like you can learn the art of shepherding or boat building or beer brewing. And, and in fact, archaeologists have uncovered lots of examples of dream interpretation textbooks. In uh, one column would contain descriptions of a symbol, and the column beside it would tell you if it was a good omen or a bad omen, and another column would tell you what it meant. Uh, so a wise person uh, could have studied these subjects and would have been, and it would have been considered simply part of the uh, skill set of an intelligent, competent person. You know, I kind of think of it, it would have been more on the order of instead of like, we think of it as like the occult or psychic or something like that, you know, but I think they would have almost thought of it like we would think of someone who's like really good at like working a spreadsheet program and looking at the columns and data and being able to interpret it. You know, someone who knows all the formulas and can set up macros and stuff like that. Uh, Now, it's no wonder that this dream held the attention of Pharaoh. It starts with Pharaoh standing beside the Nile. And it's not an exaggeration to say that the Nile was the foundation of Egyptian civilization. The Nile was what allowed Egypt to be fertile despite being in the middle of the desert. In addition, the Nile's annual flooding brought nutrients to the soil, meaning that Egypt didn't suffer from overfarming the way other ancient Mesopotamian civilizations did. The Nile was even worshipped as its own god. The god's name was Hopi, and it was the god of fertility and order. In fact, you remember Moses, the first plague, is turning the Nile River into blood. You know, their symbol of life is turned into a symbol of death. You know, very jarring for the Egyptians. Uh, And then you have two symbols of Egyptian prosperity, grain and cows, Grain was really the key to Egyptian prosperity. Egypt was later known, uh, would be known as the breadbasket of the Roman Empire because the amount of surplus grain pretty much fed much of the population of the Roman Empire. In addition, having so much grain meant that you could raise things like cows, which were which cows eat a lot. Uh, cows were a luxury item. So the fact that they, the cow was representative of Egyptians' abundance, they, they kind of saw the cow as like this sacred animal. And the horror of this dream is seeing these important symbols corrupted and then devoured. The language is even a little more explicit than it appears in our translation. The cows are not just thin, but they're actually called evil in appearance. These are like nightmare cows. And so it's very vivid language. And so as Pharaoh was aware, this was not just a dream. This was a nightmare that Pharaoh was having. So it's no wonder he sought counsel since too much about this dream indicated a message of an importance and an ominous one at that. Now, the big mystery of this chapter, at least to me, this is what I've always thought when I've read this story, is why these court dream interpreters were not able to offer Pharaoh a satisfactory interpretation. Also, why does Pharaoh dispute their interpretations of his own sages and magicians? I mean, the problem is you look, read this and you're like, seems pretty obvious, you know? Doesn't seem like Joseph did a whole lot to interpret this. Um, Now, if you'll recall, uh, the Joseph story starts with two dreams, right? Uh, In the first dream, Joseph sees himself and his brothers gathering grain in a field. And Joseph's sheaf of grain rises higher than his brothers. And the brothers' sheaves bow down to Joseph's sheaf. 
And then you have the other dream where the sun, moon, and the stars were all bowing down to Joseph. And what's interesting here is in neither of those cases of those dreams that start the, the Joseph story, do we have Joseph interpreting them. His brothers just know what they mean. It's pretty obvious to them. Now, Pharaoh's dream may be a little more cryptic than that, but it seems like the court magicians shouldn't really have any problem here. So what's up? And I think there's two uh, possible explanations here. Whoever interpreted these dreams is going to have to give Pharaoh some really bad news. And it may also have been that the interpreters themselves didn't want to face such a dire warning. And so they placed a more optimistic spin on their interpretations that Pharaoh knew couldn't possibly be true. Last year, for example, there were plenty of people who told the president that COVID would not be a big deal, either because they knew that was what he wanted to hear or because they did not want to believe what the evidence was pointing to. And it's possible a similar dynamic would have been going on here in Pharaoh's court. It's not too, un, uh, not too surprising that they would have difficulty interpreting the dreams if you kind of think about it that way. Another possibility is that the magicians did interpret the dreams accurately, but that's all they did. Because you notice that after Joseph interprets the dreams, uh, Joseph presents Pharaoh a solution to the problem of the coming famine. He doesn't just interpret the dreams, he also solves it. And so, you know, perhaps the court magicians notified Pharaoh of the danger, but they failed to provide a solution. Maybe they were like people, they looked at the spreadsheet and they said, well, that looks really bad, but they didn't figure out how to work through it. But in either event, both, uh, Joseph both diagnoses the problem and presents a solution to Pharaoh that Pharaoh accepts as accurate and wise. And so impressed is Pharaoh with Joseph that he acknowledges that Joseph must be filled with the Spirit of God and places Joseph in charge of the administration of his proposed program. Now here's the thing. And this is what I really want to get into because I think it, it really shapes the way we think about this story and how we think about the Holy Spirit. There is precedent for almost everything Joseph has done in this story so far. At several points in Joseph's life, he has been associated with dreams and dream interpretation. In, in addition, in the household of Potiphar and in prison, he has excelled in management and administration. He's been, been put in charge of things. So this announcement of the work in Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit by Pharaoh can be read not so much as like a sudden weird thing that comes out of nowhere, but rather a culmination of all the skills and experiences that Joseph had been developing his whole life. And the point of that is that in this episode of Joseph's life, which reveals the presence and working of the Holy Spirit in Joseph, is not some kind of weird supernatural event that we might think. It's not as though we have here a story of Joseph all of a sudden going into some kind of ecstatic trance. Uh, and only then is he able to exercise this uh, ability. The Spirit doesn't suddenly come upon Joseph at this moment, but it's within Joseph. What is described is not a sudden endowment of the Spirit on this specific occasion, but rather God given, but but rather Joseph using the God given talents that he's been that he's been uh, using all his life at this moment. In fact, what Joseph does is so ordinary; it doesn't have any ritual or ceremony to it. Joseph feels the need to specifically let Pharaoh know 
that everything he does is not from himself, but from God, lest Pharaoh were to come to a different conclusion. Though, as the story goes, it turns out that Joseph's words and wisdoms are so impressive that even Pharaoh must recognize they are divine in character. Notice, too, it is only after Joseph adds his consulting services to the dream interpretation that Pharaoh makes his statement about the Spirit of God being present in Joseph. And so what I'm pointing out here is that all of this is a little more ordinary than we might think, despite this whole weird thing about dream interpretation. Certainly, uh, and I don't want to make the, I, 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 I don't make this point to try to make the story less miraculous. There's lots of interesting things where God is working here. Certainly, God's presence permeates this story and its timing and its circumstances. Joseph would never have been able to exert any of these skills unless he had the talent given to him by God. At the same time, this was a talent that Joseph had improved upon and honed in different situations his whole life. As with much of the Joseph story, it's difficult to tell where God's providence ends and Joseph's initiative begins. Kind of like our lives. So last week, we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit in the natural processes of creation. And my point was that the work of the Holy Spirit seems very ordinary when we look at just the world around us. But the psalmist finds this, this great, uh, the, the, this, you know, it, it's blown away by the impressiveness of the Holy Spirit working in things like, you know, trees growing and birds and nests and the water cycle and so forth. Now, and, and of course, there too, I was making the point that if we, look, if, we over, if we overlook the work of the Holy Spirit because we're too busy trying to find something spectacular, then we miss the very presence and glory of God. And I found a similar... <laughs> that was the Ruach again. Here too, we find uh, the Holy Spirit at work in Joseph. But what's it doing? It's leading to smart management. It's leading to administration. It's leading to public policy and good governance. Now, I don't know about you, but these are not things I think about when I'm thinking about the Holy Spirit. But the Joseph story tells us that skilled operations management can be the work of the Holy Spirit here. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And and it's just as much as preaching or ministry or any other areas that we might consider more spiritual. Now, that may seem crazy. Administration, management, bureaucracy might seem like the least spiritual activities ever. However, if you think about it, I've already set us up to understand how the Holy Spirit might be connected to these things. It's seemingly mundane, uh, as, you know, a seemingly mundane thing like operations management. What is the result here of Joseph's dream interpretation and policy ideas. It's the promotion of life and flourishing for the people of Egypt over against the death, disorder, and despair of the coming famine. In other words, it's exactly the kind of thing the Holy Spirit has been doing since the beginning of creation. It is the hovering that takes to home and transforms it into Mayim, the abyss, to life-given waters. That's what Joseph is doing here. And that's why the Holy Spirit can see, be seen working in him, even as this is about management and bureaucracy and public policy. Again, 
I think it's imperative here. We need to expand our idea about how the Holy Spirit works and what it means to be spiritual. Last week, I said we need to see the Spirit in nature and that we need to recapture the awe and beauty of the world in the way that a poet would. But this week, I'm saying that we need to see the Spirit at work in good management and administration that works to bring order and life into the world. And those seem like crazy, very different ideas. And they are. But such is the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, neglecting to see the Spirit at work in these ways causes us to miss the Holy Spirit, as well as, tragically, to diminish the skills and talents of a group of people that we need in our church. Here's the thing. We totally need preachers and teachers and spiritual people in our church, but we also need people who can administer and manage in our church. We need people who are involved in public policy and can work even with ungodly rulers to promote practices that build life and flourishing. We need not think of them as necessary evils, but a part of, uh, but a part of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit works in the world. And we need to see those talents as spiritual gifts and nourish and hone those in ourselves if those are our gifts and respect and encourage them in others that we see have them. If they are not our gifts, Jesus says he has come that we may have life and to have life more abundantly. As his followers in his church, we must use every tool at our disposal, using the gifts given to us by God working together to promote life in abundance in the world, for this is what the work of the Holy Spirit is about.